Today, our show is sponsored by Nutrafol. 30 million women are impacted by weakened or thinning hair. If you are among them, know that you're not alone and there is a solution you can trust to deliver results. Thousands of women have taken back control of their hair with Nutrafol. Nutrafol offers targeted formulas for women that are clinically shown to improve hair growth and thickness with less shedding through all stages of life. Healthier hair growth takes time. You'll begin to experience thicker, stronger, faster growing hair in three to six months. In a clinical study, 86% of women reported improved hair growth after six months of use. Nutrafol is physician-formulated to be 100% drug-free. They use medical-grade botanicals in consistently effective doses so you get the most reliable results. And no matter your stage in life, they have a solution. Nutrafol women's formulation is ideal if you're experiencing thinning hair loss caused by stress, dieting, overstyling, or environmental toxins. Their other formula, Women's Balance, is for additional hormone support for those with thinning hair through menopause. You can grow thicker, healthier hair and support our show by going to Nutrafol.com and entering the promo code SELFIE to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere, and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, you get free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com. That's spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com with the promo code SELFIE. Today's episode is sponsored by Somavetic. Somavetic is a device that combines an Eastern approach to health and wellness with modern day technology. If you have a lot of devices in your home, as most of us do, then there are hundreds of signals floating through the air at any given moment. This is called EMF, and some people are really sensitive to it and believe that it can cause some not great things in the body as a result of all of these free radicals bouncing around. If you're concerned with the unwanted influences of electromagnetic radiation or geopathic zones, you'll appreciate Somavetic. Somavetic devices rely on frequency therapies and the healing powers of precious and semi-precious stones and metals to create a natural energy field to harmonize your home. It does this through the controlled release of energy from precious and semi-precious stones. It creates a 360-degree field with a radius of 100 feet in all directions. The founder of Somavetic launched these devices in 2011 as a response to his own ongoing health struggles. After years of no success with Western medicine, he turned to traditional Chinese medicine and found a variety of healing properties with stones and minerals. After some time, he was able to heal his body and has helped others as well, and his experience inspired him to create Somavetic. If you're interested in mitigating EMFs and creating a harmonic field in your environment, these devices are a great solution, and they are beautiful. Each device is comprised of their own semi-precious stones with unique properties. Somavetic is a small company, and all products are handmade and hand-assembled in their Crystal Valley, in the Crystal Valley of the Czech Republic. If you want to try Somavetic, they have a 60-day money-back guarantee to let you try. Visit somavetic.com and use the code SELFIE for 10% off. That's S-O-M-A-V-E-D-I-C.com with the code SELFIE for 10% off. Hey, everyone. I'm Kristen Howerton, a writer and a psychotherapist. And I'm Rue Powell, an admitted workaholic and self-care Luddite. And you are listening to Selfie, a weekly podcast about women learning to take better care of themselves. We think self-care is important, but it can simultaneously be elusive. We don't lack information about it, but we don't always quite get there. So this podcast is dedicated to exploring different aspects of self-care, from the silly to the serious. We're looking at health, relationships, beauty, periods, and maybe a touch of the random. We also want to look at the hurdles we face that keep us from caring for ourselves like we should. To submit questions to me or Rue, or to Claire, our beauty expert, or BJ, our resident therapist, join us in our private forum by searching Selfie Podcast Community on Facebook.
Today's episode is sponsored by Hero Cosmetics. They have an incredible product called the Mighty Patch, a hydrocolloid patch that extracts impurities so well that you can see the impurities in the patch after you remove it. If you struggle with acne popping up at the worst time, it's a great solution. If you want to try the Mighty Patch for yourself, use code SELFIE15 for 15% off at herocosmetics.com. Hey guys, well, we are going to be chatting with Glennon Doyle today. Glennon is a longtime friend. She's the author of the book Untamed, and she and I are chatting about the fallacy of perfection and um, letting go of unrealistic expectations and also children and sports and all kinds of funny things. So we're excited to share that conversation with you. But first, I wanted to check in with Rue, and Rue and I felt like, like given the things that have gone on in the past week, we really wanted to talk about George Floyd. Yes, and we recognize that um, we're recording a few days before this episode goes live. And we recognize that there will have been developments over the next few days, but we still think it's important to have a conversation about it. Um, And we can continue the discussion next week as well in the Facebook group, perhaps. So, you know, the topic of police violence against black bodies and specifically black men is one that is obviously close to my heart. Mm -hmm. I have two teenage boys. Uh, My teenage boys both appear to be much older than they are. And it is really scary having them walk around out in the world. And every single time something like this happens, I feel like I go into an almost like a state of shock for a few days Mm. of just and it's like I always know this is ever present you know anyone who's parenting black kids this is you know this is not about getting riled up after you know during the hashtag and then kind of forgetting about it it's ever present I mean it is is a constant but when things like this happen and I found the situation with George Floyd to be particularly troubling for a couple reasons. One is that there were four cops there, four different people who Mm -hmm. had an opportunity to put a stop to what was going on, who had an opportunity to check in with each other to, you know, say, hey, maybe, maybe this is, you know, he's, he's on the ground, I think we can let up. That was troubling to me that four different people could not make an appropriate decision. And there, and I therefore believe there are four people responsible for his death. The other part that really gut punched me was watching community members standing there pleading for his life. You had the man pleading for his life and you had community members pleading for his life. And this was, I mean, and the the mayor of Minneapolis said it very well. This wasn't an impulse reaction. This wasn't a shot fired quickly, you know, uh, this was a prolonged murder Um, Mm. where there were more than five minutes where any one of those four men could have made a different choice. And instead, they very intentionally pressed on his body. Three of them were pressed on his body. And that, that part disturbs me so deeply. Yes. Um, yeah, I, I think it's stunning and it's heartbreaking. And I think what people are feeling Um, whether it's uh, the black community or people like you who are parenting black children, um, it's, it's like it's rolling trauma, right? 
And you know, yeah. even even just this week, the the video clip that came out with Christian Cooper and Amy Cooper, who are of no relation, and um, we're just. Uh, someone said to me, "Well, I I don't think it's really that bad. It's just that we see videos now on social media." To which I responded, "No, I think it's worse. Right, and it's been going on for so long. And the only reason why there's now accountability is because of brave people who are taking video, who yeah. are taking footage of this stuff happening. Otherwise, otherwise, what would what would?" What would happen if nobody videotaped what was happening to George Floyd? I know. It would have been, uh, you know, it was a medical... It would have brushed, uh, been brushed under. No one would have known. You know, uh, mitigating circumstances. Right. Comorbidities. Right. Um, and, and then you wonder, how, how often does that happen? How many times have Amy Coopers called the police and... Uh, black men have been unreasonably arrested or harassed in some way. And it's just because, you know, we have iPhones now. Yeah. Thank God that all of this is coming to light. Right. Um, And so I want to bring up what Donald Trump tweeted this morning, because I think we all kind of woke up and went, oh, what the hell is going on? Like, this is just, we kind of, it's it's shocking. And I'm going to read it. Uh, or at least the second part of it. These thugs are dishonoring the memory of George Floyd, and I won't let that happen. Just spoke to Governor Tim Walls and told him that the military is with him all the way. Any difficulty, and we will assume control. But when the looting starts, the shooting starts. There is a lot to unpack there, least of which is the history behind the phrase, when the looting starts, the shooting starts. The president did not say when the looting starts, those people will be arrested and and uh, they'll be charged um, for their crimes. He didn't say that. It it's um, the fact that these people, because they're looting, it gives it gives people. I don't know. It it, it warrants being shot at. Is yeah. absurd. It is absurd to me that those words are coming out. Of the president of the United States' mouth and then retweeted by the official White House Twitter account. And we talk about not getting too political on uh, this podcast, but this this is this is goes beyond political, right? Like this is this is people's lives that um, are on the line here. And so I was really, really shocked to read that. I was really shocked to read that Um, in spite of I just feel like I'm I, I could no longer be shocked. But um, I find that to be really disconcerting because uh, verbiage like that begets more violence. It does. He is absolutely inciting violence. And I also believe, you know, the the problem, too, is we've got such lax gun laws. People, white people, can walk around with, you know, big guns strapped to their back with that's just totally fine in a lot of places. In a subway to make a point about wearing masks or whatever. Right. And so when you've got citizens who believe themselves to be some part of a militia and and you've got crazy citizens, but many of them who are sitting on internet chat forums with other racists deciding that they are sitting in wait 
for a race war. And then you have a president say something like that. He's sounding a battle cry for these people. Mm. It's very, very frightening. Like, I don't think people understand that, yes, to, you know, maybe my mother who watches Fox News and thinks, and she's very upset by the looting, she thinks, well, he's just talking about police bringing order. But there, everything he does is calculated. And he knows that there are that there is a base of racists that he is riling up right now. He knows mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, think it's I mean, accident. obviously, there's obviously a certain level of responsibility when you can activate that amount of people, right? Yeah. Um, which is 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 really upsetting. Um, and and I, I wanted to speak a little bit, and I, I wanted your thoughts on this, on our roles as people who are not black. What, right. What can we do? And um, I mentioned this earlier today, I was chit-chatting on Instagram, that it feels good perhaps to share a really beautiful image that says Black Lives Matter. But if that's the extent of our work, then that's simply uh, armchair activism, right? And it's just not, it's not enough. So what can we do? And I was, I was thinking about how um, I don't know how many times you've heard a story or told a story where someone says, oh, gosh, you will not believe the racism that I just witnessed in Walmart or CVS or I was at the PTA and someone said this and it was so shocking and I can't believe someone said that. And I've been guilty of this, too, where I hear something and I don't call it out immediately. And I think that's now our role. We should be calling that stuff out immediately because otherwise what are all of our you know hashtag black lives matter instagram posts for if we're not calling out racism in our communities and microaggressions in the workplace and racism among among our family members and friends um i think that's i think that's really important to to start vocalizing and not just like silently texting a friend about it like oh my gosh you won't believe what someone just said I completely agree. I think it is really incumbent upon white people to solve this problem. This is this is a in by and large a white person problem. Not to say that there is not racism, you know, from the Asian community against blacks or the Mexican community against blacks. That's certainly a thing too. Um but you know, when we're looking at these situations and the cops that are involved, it tends to be white cops. It tends to be white men and women who are calling the cops on black people for no reason. You know, um, Mm -hmm. the Amy Cooper situation was a good example. There was another guy this weekend who called the cops on three guys who rent in his own building who were using the gym (laughs) that they had access to. And he felt they didn't belong there. Um, And so I think that this is a, a problem. It's a problem that white people need to solve. But in order to do that, I think we also need to be listening to black voices. And I know for some people that feels a little convoluted and confusing, like, wait, so you want me to do something, but you want but you want me to be like amplifying someone else? Yes. Yes. All yes, of it. Yes. And <laughs> yes, yes, all of it. We need to listen to black and brown voices. We need to amplify black and brown voices. But we also need to speak from our own voices because and this is the very sad part of it is 
some of these people who are entrenched in racial bias are not going to hear it from black and brown voices, but they may hear it from a coworker, a relative, a friend. Um, we may be the voice that they will listen to. And so I think it's, it's all of it and it is work. And, you know, a lot of people have been talking this week about the fact that if you are not anti-racist at this point, you're racist. Like if you are not taking actionable steps, then you are complicit, then then you're a bystander. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we all have to really start doing this work. And a part of doing that work, I will say, is every white person um, who grew up in this country needs to do some dismantling of their own faulty history that they've learned about and of their own racial bias, because we all have it. Every single one of us has it because we have grown up in a toxic environment. It's like a poison. Um, And we had the chance to talk with Latasha Morrison in a couple episodes back. I would encourage people to listen to that conversation because she is fantastic and gave a lot of good info. Um, But Mm -hmm. we also wanted to just spend our two thumbs up for this episode talking about books that people can read. Yes. um, Yeah, I think... I think that's a great idea. I love the idea. I mean, I think it's important for us to amplify voices as well as, um, you know, confront our own biases. And look, being willing to say, shoot, I might have some biases that I've been dealing with since I was younger. It's okay to say that, you know, like, like, there are there are plenty of us who would say what happened to George Floyd was wrong, but maybe have also participated in microaggressions against the black community absolutely without without uh, without really recognizing it and i it's okay to recognize that and to know better and to do better and i grew up in a very specific kind of environment with very specific kind of language around people who are black and i'm i consider myself to be a a a person of color Mm -hmm. and that i'm um and that i'm asian but the experience that I've had is very different than an experience, you know, any experience a, a black woman would have. Um, and so it's been really important for me over the years to confront my own biases and say, you know, that is kind of a terrible thing that I thought. Or, hey, why why was – forgive me. Why was I surprised that um, this doctor who treated me was black? Like, why did I kind of go, oh, this is a black doctor? Of course there are black doctors. Um, but was it ingrained in me that perhaps um, black folks aren't as educated? Like, I, and, and it goes on and on. And I am actually embarrassed saying that to you right now. But, but these but are things that have thing. kind of been... We, in t- we need to talk about that embarrassing stuff. You know, we really do. Because we all, every single one of us has our own story like that. And probably every single one of us has an example of our parents or grandparents saying racist stuff to us or friends. You know, when I, I used to teach um, on psychology and diversity to grad students who were wanting to be therapists. And the first assignment we did in that class is I asked everyone to write a memoir of their own racial experiences And I wanted them to write everything. What messages did you get from your parents? Mm. What messages did you get in school? What messages did you get from the media? What thoughts and and beliefs did you take in? And for a, you know, and the class was mixed, but for many of the white people in the class to stand up and really admit all of that stuff, 
Um, it was powerful because we try to hide our racism. We have deep shame about mm. it. Well, most most white people, I think, have deep shame about the racism that that we carry, but we can't unpack it until we admit it. I think one really interesting question to ask yourself and, and to ask, you know, this is a question that if I had asked my friends in high school, all of us would have the same answer. How would your parents feel if you brought home a black boy? Yeah. And for all of us, you know, the answer is, was it was not was not good. And I think that all of our, you know, no one would have considered themselves necessarily a racist, just that, oh, I don't want my daughter dating a black boy. Yeah, I I actually did not have that experience, but my grandmother, my sister married um a black man, but my grandmother had a real problem with it, a real problem mm. with it and was very vocal about it. My parents um were you know, were great and and always have been, but my definitely my grandparents had negative things to say and didn't come to the wedding. Oh. Well, I, yeah, I guess the point is, is that it's it's a little bit heartbreaking for all of us to kind of have to stare at our own brains yeah. <laughs> and our own past and kind of reconcile how perhaps we've contributed to discrimination in this country. But then also, like you said, you know, look to some uh, black and brown voices, which is why we've put together some some books on race that we think would be, you know, helpful for, for anyone who's interested in, in reading some more. So two books that I want to recommend. The first is How to Be Anti-Racist. Um, this is a newer book. It is a very, very good guide on moving out of being a like passive, like I'm not racist person to being more of an ally. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really approachable book. Um, and then the other one I would recommend um, deals more with just the, his the historical factors that um, – have created the environment that we do live in. And it's the condemnation of blackness, race crime in the making of modern urban America. Um, and that one was very eye opening to me, just in terms of how we have sort of criminalized black bodies. Um, especially, you know, given that I grew up in Florida, not mm -hmm. hearing, you know, accurate stories of the treatment of black people in the United States. So um, I think that one's really helpful too. Um, I'm recommending I'm Still Here, Black Dignity in a World Made for Whiteness by yes. Austin Channing Brown. So good. And uh, I listened to her speak, I guess, two years ago and uh, just thought that she was so insightful and thoughtful. Um, and the other book, the other recommendation I have is, is fiction. And the reason why I'm recommending it is because it's kind of nice to read about this in a with a storyline. Um, it's The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And it's also a, a great book for teens, if this is something you want to discuss with your with your teenagers, which I hope you do. Yeah, very good book for teens. It's a great mm. book to read, um, I would say maybe 13 up. Um, yeah. But it's a great book to read with kids and, and have a really good dialogue. My kids and I had a really good dialogue around that book. Um, and it really sparked some yeah, just talking points that I may not have gotten to by myself. Um, we also wanted to share a couple people that we recommend you follow on social media, people who are talking about 
issues of racism and action steps and things like that. So I wanted to share a few. Um, Of course, Latasha Morrison, who we had on the show previously, Mm. she is the author of Be the Bridge. um, And she is a really great person to follow. Um, I really enjoy following Baratune Day Thurston. He wrote a book called How to Be Black. He is crazy smart, um, but he is also a humorist. And so he is able to sort of meld those two things together. Um, But he has been doing regular kind of broadcasts from his Instagram page um, about current events. Um, Jamil Smith is a guy that I follow on Twitter, who's a journalist and just a really smart writer. And then Gene Demby from Code Switch. If you don't listen to the Code Switch Code Switch podcast. It's a really good one. Mm. Um, talking about race and intersectionality, but Jean Demby is a great person to follow on Twitter. What are some of your favorite follows? Well, this is a new one for me, but Rachel Rachel Cargill on Instagram. I like her because she has a lot of she very much wants to educate and has lots of resources. And I find that just going through her Instagram um just gives me like another vantage point and frankly, like resources to one, read, but to share. Uh, So she's a great voice to amplify. Um, Ijeoma Oluo uh, is also great on Twitter, um, as well as a friend of ours who is Lovey Ajayi. Yes. Lovey's so great to follow. I want to I want to give one more and this is generally really humor focused, but I find that it is uh, really insightful as well is that if you like Reddit, um uh the subreddit black people twitter um a lot of it is funny just it's just screen grabs of tweets and a lot of it is really insightful and then there are really good comment sections and discussions as well so i'll link to that subreddit as well and we will um start a thread about this in our um, facebook community group so that we can chat and share resources on this as well we wanted to take a minute to talk about one of our paid sponsors payoff.com If you are struggling with debt right now and high interest rates are making it hard for you to get out of the credit card debt on your own, a payoff loan may be an option to get out of the debt cycle. A payoff loan is a personal loan backed by member-centric credit unions designed to help you pay off your credit cards with rates as low as 5.99% APR and loan amounts up to $35,000. There are no hidden fees and payoff.com offers customer support to help you reach your financial goals. Some of the benefits of a payoff loan may also include potential credit score boosting, one monthly payment, and savings from a lower interest rate. Go to payoff.com slash selfie to learn more. And no worries, checking loan rates won't affect your credit score. Try something new. Pay off your credit card debt with payoff. More information is available at payoff.com slash selfie. NMLS ID number 1396805. Not all applicants may qualify. Loans only available within the United States. Loan is not available in all states. Payoff works with lending partners who originate the loans. Additional terms, conditions, and eligibility requirements may apply. More information is available at payoff.com slash selfie. So when I was a teen learning to shave my legs, my mom did not do me any favors by buying me really cheap disposable razors. If you grew up in as a teen in the 90s, you know the ones, and they left nicks and cuts all over me when I was trying to shave. So with two girls learning how to shave their legs right now, I am committed to making sure that they have good quality razors. Guys, I was probably well into my 30s before I realized the difference a quality razor makes. Today's sponsor is Athena Club. They have great razor kits that we have been using in our house for a couple months. 
The razor blades are awesome. They are surrounded by this water activated serum that has shea butter and hyaluronic acid. So you get a slicky smooth shave that actually leaves your skin soft and hydrated as opposed to stripped dry. And their blades are spaced out to let hair and shave cream pass through easily. So you don't have to make a ton of passes going over and over the skin to remove the hair. Fewer passes means less irritation to your skin, which cuts down on razor burn and ingrown hairs. The razor kit is only $9 with free shipping and it comes with two blade cartridges, a cute little magnetic hook for your shower storage, and your choice of a handle color. I personally chose the coral, but what I really like about it is they have a ton of different colors, black, white, pastel, neon. So if you have a big family like mine, everyone can have the razor in their own color so you don't get them confused. What I also love about Athena Club, you guys know I love automating things. You never have to worry about dull blades because they send refills on your schedule. You just choose how often you want them and they will send them automatically with free shipping. I would also highly recommend their cloud shave foam too. It's insanely thick and stays on while you shave so you don't have to reapply. It leaves your skin feeling very moisturized. It's really, really good. If you want to try a great quality razor that cuts down on the wastefulness of disposable razors, try Athena Club Razor Kit. You can get 20% off your first order at athenaclub.com with the promo code SELFIE. That's A-T-H-E-N-A-C-L-U-B.com with the promo code SELFIE for 20% off. We've talked a lot about skincare on the show and specifically tretinoin. If you're not familiar, it's a retinoid, which is an active vitamin A derivative that's used to improve the texture, tone, and appearance of the skin. Today's sponsor, Dear Brightly, has a product called Night Shift, and tretinoin is the active ingredient in Night Shift. This is the only FDA-approved retinoid for treating photoaging, which is premature skin aging due to long-term sun exposure. Tretinoin stimulates collagen production to prevent and treat signs of premature skin aging from years of sun damage, things like fine lines and wrinkles, dark spots, uneven skin tone, and big pores. Tretinoin can only be acquired through a prescription, but it's 20 times more potent than the -the over-the-counter retinol products. It's one of the most well-researched ingredients with over 50 years of research behind it for both acne and photoaging. I had a chance to try Night Shift, and I'm really liking it. I have the unfortunate experience of having both breakouts and wrinkles at the same time, and it's great for both. I have seen my fine lines decreasing. I've seen my skin tone looking better, and it feels really nice. If you've used an over-the-counter retinol before, you know it's really great, but a dermatology-grade retinoid is even better. Night Shift is their dermatologist-formulated serum that's tailored to your skin by doctors online. Dear Brightly works by you first of all starting by sharing your skin story with them, then a doctor evaluates your skin and your skin history. They then tailor your formula and write a prescription, if applicable, and your tailored serum will be delivered to you in the mail. It's super simple and easy. Head to www.dearbrightly.com and enter the promo code SELFIE to get 15% off your first order, which is their very best offer anywhere. That's S-E-L-F-I-E to get 15% off your first order at dearbrightly.com. Well, we are excited to be chatting with Glennon Doyle today. Glennon is the author of the new book, Untamed, and she and I have a much larger conversation that will be linked up in our show notes. But we started this conversation off with each of us reading a segment from our own books that we felt had a lot of overlap with each other's books. So we start with me reading a segment from Rage Against the Minivan, followed by Glennon reading a segment from Untamed. As the kids are getting older, we also have real-life dramas, broken hearts and social issues and challenges in school and therapy appointments. 
We are far from perfect. And yet I think we are very typical. We're an average, okay, mostly happy family. And my ongoing challenge is learning that this is enough. It's still a constant temptation to compare my life to the highlight reel people post online. Once I was scrolling through Instagram and I saw the photos of a friend on a Hawaiian vacation with her kids. And as I looked at their photos, I had this pang of jealousy. I was thinking, wow, they really go on a lot of trips. I wish I was able to do that. I want to be a family that travels more. They look like they're having so much fun. Then I realized that I was looking at my phone at an Airbnb in Palm Springs where I was staying with my kids for a week. I was jealous of someone else's family vacation while I was on my own awesome vacation. This is how absurd social media FOMO can be. The truth is that contentment is an inside job. So is authenticity. Our validation doesn't come from magazines, blogs, Facebook feeds, or even your best friends. It doesn't come from looking like you have it all together online. It's easy to spend our time trying to manufacture the visuals of contentment or longing for the images of happiness that permeate social media. It's harder, but more rewarding to dig into our our own lives to do the work of finding gratitude and satisfaction in our private moments. The struggle to be happy and content with yourself is a journey. Over the years, I've worked hard at settling into peace with being a good enough mom while maintaining some sense of my own identity outside of parenting. And that's what raging against the minivan has come to mean to me. It's the quiet rebellion against obsessing over the optics and outcomes of motherhood. From the kind of car we drive to looking like we have it all together. It's about opting out of the comparison game and giving ourselves permission to fail, to get back up, and to love with our whole hearts again the next day. Mm, So good. So good. Mm. Okay. So this chapter is called Ghosts from Untamed. Okay, it starts with a a quote that says, "Um, I was born a little broken with an extra dose of sensitivity. Some horse shit I wrote about myself in my first memoir. When I was in my 20s, I believed that somewhere there existed a perfect human woman. She woke up beautiful, unbloated, clear-skinned, fluffy-haired, fearless, lucky in love, calm and confident. Her life was easy. She haunted me like a ghost. I tried so hard to be her. In my 30s, I gave that ghost the finger. I quit trying to be the perfect woman and decided to celebrate my imperfection. I claimed a new identity, jacked up human. I announced to anyone who would listen, I'm a hot mess and proud of it. I love this crappy version of humanity that I am. I am broken and beautiful. F you, perfect woman. The problem was that I still believed that there was an ideal human and that I was not her. The problem was that I still believed in ghosts. I had just decided to live in defiance of perfection. Rebellion is as much of a cage as obedience is. They both mean living in reaction to someone else's way instead of forging your own. Freedom is not being for or against an ideal, but creating your own existence from scratch. A few years ago, Oprah Winfrey was interviewing me about my first memoir. She opened the book and read my words back to me. I was born broken. Then she paused, looked up from the page and asked, would you still describe yourself that way as broken? Her eyes sparkled. I looked at her and said, no, actually I wouldn't. That's ridiculous. I think this sort of thing is why Jesus only wrote in the sand. Broken means does not function as it was designed to function. A broken human is one who does not function the way humans are designed to function. 
When I think about my own human experience, what honest people have told me about their human experiences, and the experiences of every historical and contemporary human being I've ever studied, we all seem to function in the exact same way. We hurt people, and we are hurt by people. We feel left out, envious, not good enough, sick and tired. We have unrealized dreams and deep regrets. We are certain that we were meant for more and that we don't even deserve what we have. We feel ecstatic and then numb. We wish our parents had done better by us. We wish we could do better by our children. We betray and we are betrayed. We lie and we are lied to. We say goodbye to animals, to places, to people we cannot live without. We are afraid of dying, also of living. We have fallen in love and out of love and people have fallen in love and out of love with us. We wonder if what happened to us that night will mean we can never be touched again without fear. We live with rage bubbling. We are sweaty, bloated, gassy, oily. We love our children. We long for children. We do not want children. We are at war with our bodies, our minds, our souls. We are at war with one another. We wish we'd said all those things while they were still here. They're still here, and we're still not saying those things. We know we won't. We don't understand ourselves. We don't understand why we hurt those we love. We want to be forgiven. We cannot forgive. We don't understand God. We believe. We absolutely do not believe. We are lonely. We want to be left alone. We want to belong. We want to be loved. We want to be loved. We want to be loved. If this is our shared human experience, where did we get the idea that there is some other, better, more perfect, unbroken way to be human? Where is the human being who is functioning correctly against whom we are all judging our performances? Who is she? Where is she? And what is her life if it is not these things? I got free the moment I realized that my problem isn't that I'm not a good enough human. My problem is that I'm not a good enough ghost. If I don't have to be a ghost, I don't have a problem. If you are uncomfortable, in deep pain, angry, yearning, confused, you don't have a problem. You have a life. Being human is not hard because you're doing it wrong. It's hard because you're doing it right. You will never change the fact that being human is hard. So you must change your idea that it was ever supposed to be easy. I will not call myself broken, flawed, or imperfect anymore. I will quit chasing ghosts because the, cha the chase left me weary. And because I am a woman who no longer believes in ghosts. Allow me to rewrite my own self-description. I am 44 years old. With all my chin hairs and pain and contradictions, I am flawless and broken. There is no other way. I am haunted by nothing. So good. Mm. I love that. I love, there's so much to unpack there. Um, but I love you describing this sort of messy human experience as just a, you know, an inevitable part of our life, you know, that we, um, we will have pain. We will betray. We, we, we will feel betrayed. We will compare. We, you know, the, these are, you know, not broken aspects of ourself, but human aspects of ourself. Yeah. I mean, I wrote that essay because it, it's still, it's like this thing that swirls inside me every time somebody describes themselves as imperfect. Mm -hmm. Does it make any sense to me? Yeah. Like as a words person, I'm obsessed with like labeling things correctly. Yeah. And whenever people are talking about, well, I'm not perfect, I'm like, what do you mean? And if you say, what do you mean? They'll say, well, I, I get really angry. I have a temper. I lose a blah, blah, blah. And I'm, they, they will just list things yeah. that are human. Yeah. They're just human beings. Yeah. Right? 
Well, and we live in this, you know, we love, we love binaries and false dichotomies. And so we think that we're either perfect or we're imperfect. And maybe we're in a messy middle. Maybe that's where life lives. Yeah. Or maybe like, we're maybe all of those things just are perfect. Like maybe per- because if there's no ideal, if there's no, if we're saying we're imperfect, then we need something to compare them to. Im yeah. means not. So what is the thing that we're trying to be that we are not? It's like an elephant standing yeah. around going, I'm, I'm an imperfect elephant. Like, no, you're just an elephant. Like, yes. right. Yes. Right. I wish yeah. I were a dog. I wish like, we are always going to be all of these things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that is perfect. Yes. To, perfect is whole. But it's right? not, perfect is not a ghost, a, you know, a Barbie, a, <laughs> a culturally constructed idea. That's what we're saying. I we're think saying, that's what we're saying. We're saying, what I'm saying when I mean I'm imperfect is I don't match mm-hmm. some cultural idea yes. of what I was told is ideal. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. And I think that I think pushing back against that cultural idea is where so many women are having a mo- a moment of alignment right now, because I think and especially, you know, we're in our 40s where we're going like, what? What is this bullshit? Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That's what the 40s should be called. We should all get T-shirts. Yeah. Hold up. Uh uh-uh. uh. What are we doing here? Myself doing chasing some bullshit idea of what somebody told me to be. Yeah. And the hilarious part is, Kristen, when we think about it in terms of parenting. Yeah. Whenever you talk to a mother about why she thinks she's imperfect, she will tell you why she's human. Yeah. (laughs) She'll list her human qualities as imperfections. Yes. Which wouldn't it be lovely if we could just be human to our kids and teach them that they could just be human? I mean. Because think about this all the time, because if we're trying to be these robots, I, I really do think when you ask a woman, a mother, what she should be like, she mm-hmm. should list an Android for you. Yes. Like, mm-hmm. A robot that cleans houses. Right. Yeah. And that smiles all the time yes. and that never breaks down and that yeah. never describes she would Android. And then the problem is she's not raising Androids, mm-hmm. right? Like she's raising actual human people who are going to have that entire experience we just all so the feelings. Raise, and if we raise them without showing them how to embrace all of that, they're going to wake yeah. up one day and realize they're fully human and have no model for it. They're going to think something's wrong with them. Well, I mean, that's what happened to me. Yeah, same. Yeah, absolutely. I don't have a model for being human. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I think so many of us are walking around, you know, we don't know how to do this. We didn't, we didn't have it modeled for us, right? to teach us. Luckily, they taught us a lot of crap we don't need. Like, for example, Kristen, I don't know how to be human. I never learned how to like grieve or deal with anger. But I do know um, all three types of ancient Roman columns that I could, I spent six Ionic, months. let's see. Um, <laughs> Ionic. I know them too. Corinthian. Yes. And there's a D. Doric. Doric. <laughs> Nailed it. Such Doric. good information. Such good information. Well, I, I, could take a Bible at any given moment and find a chapter of the Bible. Um, but I missed all the passages that referred to, you know, maybe, maybe not needing to be this perfect. Somehow, why did we get so hung up on Proverbs 31 and misinterpret that so much? Right? Like, I know why. I know why. 
I the, know men, the men because yeah. because the men interpreted it for us. Yeah. Possible. <laughs> Possible. That's why we're in all this shit. Daddy. Yeah, but that's but this, cool because that's the wait a minute, right? Wait yes, minute. this isn't working for us anymore, right? Well, because this is a uniquely female. I, I mean, not to say that men do not struggle with feeling their feelings or trying not to be a version of themselves that they that is unrealistic. But I think we have women have a specific brand of it that is really untenable. Yeah. It's like everything that makes us human is like our dirty secret. Oh yeah. We we want, we desire, we feel, mm-hmm. we can imagine more. We like all of these things that we've been taught mean that we're not grateful enough. Right. Or maybe we're not yeah. winsome. Fascinating. Yeah. We're not, yeah, we're not positive enough. And then we, and then we have all of these, all of these, um, you know, rules around how we can engage because we don't, we should be assertive, but not too assertive because then we're bitchy. And well, and that's the other thing. Like there's no, since there's no woman doing it perfectly. Yes. There's, there's, you can, we can constantly be told we're to that we're to this. And then you say, well, can you just, can you, can you just show me then? Like what's, what am I going for? Right. <laughs> There's no example, right? Oh, There's no. nobody nailing it. So yeah. it's almost like the perfect plan to get us to never speak. <laughs> yes. Yes. It is. So, I mean, for those who have not read your book, talk to me about what is, I mean, I think we're, touching on the edges here, but what is untamed? What does it mean to be untamed? Well, I mean, I think that it's just the process of us being born as, you know, wild, individual, unique selves, Mm -hmm. and that we have that tension going on all the time inside of us while we are part of a, a, a civilization, right, that necessarily has to assimilate us into groups, right? So we've got this constant, you know, this, we know that from usually from around eight years old to 12 years old is when little girls especially start to internalize their social programming, Mm -hmm. right? So I might feel all this and be all this, but then I learn that I'm a girl. So I have to be quiet and sweet. Then I learn I'm a doyle. So I have to somehow be quiet and sweet, but also tough and never have feelings. And then I learn that I'm a Christian. So I have to not think too much and just keep my head down and not ask any questions. But then I'm also American. So I have to be proud and never ask any questions about like, it's Thing. I'm yes. straight. Layer so after layer. It's, it's just this constant. We have created um, groups where you, it, it requires people to choose mm-hmm. between their individuality or their belonging. Mm-hmm. Right. And that for, and I understand, I mean, you know, for our survival, we are pack animals, right? Yeah. We learn that we have to assimilate in oh, order yeah. to have protection. Mm-hmm. But I think we're entering a time now where it's really interesting, where in order for us to survive as a species, we're going to have to reverse that instinct. Yeah. Right. We're going to have to start stepping away. Right. Mm. We, we need men who are stepping outside of patriarchy. We need white women who are stepping outside mm. of, of um, white supremacy. We need Republicans who are stepping away from Democrats and Democrats. We need people who are, who are aligning with their individual conscience more than ever. We do. We certainly do. Yeah. And I feel like I'm seeing that shift. Yeah. Yeah. I think we will. I think that this quarantine time, I, I, so so much terrible. I mean, I run together rising, so the needs are unbelievable. And I also wonder if we're going to come out of this where people are just going to 
people are having major wait a minute moments. They like, are sitting with themselves, watching our institutions prove themselves to be corrupt, <sighs> living with our relationships, mm-hmm. like all the distractions being gone that we keep ourselves busy from. So we're yeah. not healing. I think there's going to be a bit of a rising after this. I do too. I mean, it's such an interesting time. It- Right before all of this happened, I was really wrestling with, I feel like we're overscheduled and Mm -hmm. I feel like my kids are like, and I write about this in the book a little bit too. I feel like there's all of this pressure for kids to do, and it's the same pressure that's on adults. It's like, get them into the right sports and put them in the clubs that'll get them into this college and, you know, put them in the the theater that that will get them into the auditions. And everything is sort of like this walk up to make sure they have every best opportunity but in order to do those things, it's so competitive that you don't have time to be. And I felt like we were not, my my family life wasn't having time to just learn how to live, like learn mm-hmm. how to be people that at the end of the day can sit with other people and, and talk and communicate. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And I struggle with those things too. I'm, you know, I'm an Enneagram three. I like to fill my schedule. I like to be busy and productive and look at me. I'm, you know. I'm a good person because I'm doing things. And I was feeling like I was almost modeling that culture in my family. And I was like, we need a pause. And then this happened. And I was like, not like this. No, not like this. You're saying this is your fault. Yeah. You requested this. I secreted it into the world. You're welcome, everyone. It's so interesting, though. It's like we wonder we get to age and we cannot untangle our worthiness from our productivity. Oh, right. That is I a mean, lifelong struggle for me every day still. And as creative people, like it's just like, we feel like we don't even, we're not worthy of the space we take up. If yeah. we're not like making a new idea or sir, you know, yes. it's, it's exhausting to just to, to live that way. And, and I think it's cool that you're, because of course, if we model that for our kids, by that constant, and then there's that, there's that part of ourselves that is like, okay, well, I want to model the like slowing down, but then my kids are going to miss out. Like if I pull yes. us off the Insta reel. Yes. It's such a. Mm. It's tough, but I will tell you, I did pull my kids off the hamster wheel because I did decide I, you know, like I want my kids to, to know how to rest and, mm. and you know, end a day peacefully more than I want them to be the very best at sports or the very best at singing or whatever their thing is. Like I, I would rather them be okay at things and be good humans than be like prodigies and like a mess. You know, I really feel that. You are speaking my language. I mean, Abby makes fun of me all the time because my, she calls my goal for parenting mediocrity. Oh, that, yeah. My kids were in sports and they're, it's a different story now because when an Olympian joins your family, everything gets screwed up. Yes. But like, I would pull them out if they got too good at things. Yeah. Like I wanted them to be good enough not to embarrass themselves in PE, but like Say yes. not Same. too good to ruin all of my weekends. <laughs> <laughs> Same. I feel the same when that, when it starts anything, whatever it is, I'm like, if this sport or this community theater is ruining our dinners for two weeks in a row, I'm out. I'm out. And then my friends would be like so excited that their kids got like a thousand dollar scholarship to college or something. And I'm like, but didn't you spend $40,000 on leotards in the last decade? I had 
that exact talk with my kids. I know. Totally. I had that exact talk with my kids because they get all like scholarships. I'm going to get football scholarship, basketball scholarship. And I'm like, to what end? So I'm going to pay for all these sports clubs so that you can, you know, go to a state school that doesn't cost that much money and get a scholarship. Doesn't cost as much as I'm paying now for the gas. Not even close. (laughs) Not to mention my sanity and their sanity, which that costs a lot. So yeah, we I'm we are. But back to your point, I do think that this is a moment in time when my family has just learned all new skills. Right, like Mm -hmm. we've learned to have longer dinners, and we've learned to, Mm -hmm. I don't know, like. My kids are sitting and playing guitar with each other. I'm like, what dream world am I am? Like this, this is, <laughs> this is actually how I pictured my family. <laughs> like we have the time. And we have these moments, but we're so human that we're like, God, I can't wait to live over too. Like we can't ever be happy with what's going on oh. in the moment. I'm, totally. I've accepted that about myself. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. And that in that moment of playing guitar with each other, probably one of them is going to sit on and fart on the other in a minute. In a minute. Of course. Or That's why you got to take a picture of things <laughs> before the fart so that you can put it on social media and make everyone else feel shit. Like look at us. Night. <laughs> yeah. Look, look at us. We're just playing guitar idyllically oh, in my God. living room. It's fine. Look at that filter. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, but that is the truth. I mean, and isn't that isn't that parenting though? It's like you you love the moment that you're in and then at the same time you can't wait to get to the next step because it's driving you nuts. And it's not even for me, it's like even the good moments. Like I, Kristen, live by the beach. Okay, I'm about to tell you this, but I sometimes will be re- I'm always reading. Yeah. Right? On the beach and my kids are playing in the water. And sometimes people are like looking at us because Abby and all the things. Yeah. And I will be like, okay, like how long should I be looking at them? Like pretending to enjoy them. <laughs> like what would a good mom, like, is it, do I have to do it for 20 seconds? Mm. Or is it like, like how long do I have to look lovingly at them before I get back? <laughs> Listen, I, I actually, I wrote I actually wrote a chapter about that very thing because my answer is not at all. I don't need to look at them. Here's the the thing. This is my argument. Okay. Mothers from the dawn of time have been busy, you know, and we have all these modern conveniences now that make us less busy. We're not churning butter. We're not sewing their clothes, right? We're not foraging for their food, but like, Mothers, you know, Paleolithic mothers were not sitting around admiring their children. And Ma from Little House on the Prairie was not sitting around like watching cartwheels. They weren't. They had shit to do. And we we still have shit to do. It's just different things. It's different things. Right. But like we're just, we, we're not, mothers are not meant to be passive admirers of their children all day. I just oh, believe that so hard. I like that so much what you just said. Yeah, I mean, look, we can have moments, but like not everything is a moment. Not everything is a moment. Some moments are just for us to not do precious things. You can hear the rest of this conversation with Glennon at the link in our show notes. And you can find both Glennon's book and my own book in the show notes as well. Today's episode is sponsored by SaveTheChildren.org. Save the Children believes every child deserves a future. 
In the United States and around the world, they work every day to give children a healthy start in life, including the kids that are hardest to reach. Right now, the coronavirus is the biggest global health crisis of our lifetime, and it threatens kids in many ways. COVID-19 has already left a lot of kids without caregivers or out of school and exposed to violence. With your support, Save the Children can help kids in unsafe households and help them distance learn in the face of school closures. Here's a couple ways you can make a difference. For $25, you could feed five kids who are out of school a nutritious breakfast and lunch. For $50, you can deliver essential learning supplies to kids who are learning outside of school. And for $100, you can fill a bookshelf for out-of-school children in rural America where many don't own a single book. To help, go to savethechildren.org slash savekids. Again, www.savethechildren.org slash savekids. Let's hear from BJ. Well, when I came onto the Facebook page this week and asked you for things to talk about, you came through with some of the best questions we've had so far. I'm actually going to be doing a series answering the majority of those questions over the next few weeks because many of them segue into each other and are connected in ways that I don't think any of you even realize. I'm starting this week with a question that... I think most people think is a dumb question because they feel like it's something they should just automatically know. And the truth is, it's one of the most commonly asked questions I've ever had. The question is this. This may sound weird, but I'm realizing I have no idea how to just feel what I'm feeling, how to sit with my feelings instead of railroad over them and keep up with life or ignore them. You cannot imagine how many people struggle with that. And there are a lot of good reasons for that. Mostly, our parents didn't know to teach us these things. And then we come into a, a culture where mental health is becoming more um, less stigmatized and more of an open conversation. And this terminology gets thrown out there and people are like, yeah, that's what I need to do. How do you do that? But don't I already know how to do that? It's feelings. I have feelings. Don't I feel my feelings? What does it mean to feel my feelings? And then when you really start thinking about it, you're like, oh, I think I don't know how to feel my feelings. I don't even know what that means or if I'm doing it right or wrong. And the truth is the therapeutic world has a lot of language that we throw around and assume that people get and understand. And I think it's really important that we normalize these things and make it easier to ask the question because no one taught me how to feel my feelings. It was modeled for me, but... I didn't know it was important. I just felt them all. And that wasn't always a good thing. And I had to figure out how to feel them and then manage them. But in everyday life, no one really taught us how to feel our feelings, what to do with the ones that were difficult, how to process them, how to move through them, how to heal them if they're traumatic. That's just not a part of Parenting 101. It should be. It can be. But it certainly wasn't for us. But you can learn it now and teach it to your kids. So here's where it starts. The key to feeling your feelings is actually hidden right there in the name. It's a feeling. And where do we feel feelings? Where do we feel anything? In our bodies. You feel by touching. You feel by sensing. But what you feel is what is happening in your body. The most fascinating part about feeling our feelings is that our bodies know what we're feeling before our brains can register what the feeling is. So what I would encourage you to do is to begin practicing this. It is a practice, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in a bit. But I would encourage you to actually set aside some time to try this out. 
to try different ways of figuring out what's going on for you. And boy, this has been a good time when our feelings have been so raw and unusual and so easily ruptured. Then there's parts of it that we're feeling that we don't even know what we're feeling or why we're feeling it. We're not really aware that it's there until it kind of pops up. And so I want you to just the next time you feel that way, you feel confused about something that's going on, or you're feeling not quite right. Anxiety is such a great way to approach this because sometimes we can't figure out what anxiety is about or where it's coming from. And it's a feeling. So what I encourage you to do is get curious about it. Where in your body do you feel it? Is it a feeling of warmth? Is it a feeling of coldness? Does it have a sensation? Does it have a color? For some people, some people see feelings in colors. So does yours have a color? Emotions are messengers, basically. So they're trying to tell us something. As you try to figure out what it is it's trying to tell you, I want you to not try to figure out an answer for that. Our emotions are connected to our intuition, and our intuition is the voice of our deepest selves. Just like our real voices, our inner voices long to be heard and validated. And if they have to get loud to get our attention, they will. But once we acknowledge them, once they're heard and felt, they tend to lessen in intensity. A lot of times, and this is especially true for those of you who are HSPs, highly sensitive people, feelings can feel so overwhelming that it's hard to sort out what the feeling is. But also the intensity of your feelings really is more than what the average person experiences. That can often lead people to feeling like they don't want to feel their feelings, especially if they're difficult feelings. But they may even experience that with good feelings. Highly sensitive people often feel like even a joyful emotion can feel overwhelming at times and uncomfortable. You might even have thought to yourself, if I let myself feel it, what if I can't make it stop? Or what if it consumes me completely? What if it's more than I can handle? Or worse, what if it breaks me? Here's the good news. No one has ever died from feeling a feeling. Seriously. However, many people have died as a result of not feeling a feeling. We cannot heal what we won't feel or don't feel. If we don't allow ourselves to feel a difficult emotion or a traumatic emotion, we can't recover from it. And when we don't feel our feelings, they take up residency in our bodies. They're not meant to stay there. They're meant to be felt, processed, and moved through. If we can't even get to the point that we can identify what the feeling is, then it's really hard to feel it and process it so that it can move through. So if you're struggling to know what a feeling is, or maybe you find you're just yourself saying, I don't know, I, I've tried, I've tried everything and I don't know what I'm feeling. I want you to just stop, put one hand over your heart, one hand on your belly, take a deep, deep breath all the way into your diaphragm and exhale it and then just breathe normally and get really quiet and listen. That intuitive voice knows you know everything that's ever happened to you. You know what you're feeling. Even if you're having a hard time putting words to it, you know what you need. You know yourself better than anyone. And you have everything you need in order to be okay within yourself. Tapping into that knowing which lives in your gut, where your intuition lies. The reason we call it your gut. reason we tell you to trust your gut lies in your belly. And if you just sit quietly long enough, you'll get to something, even if you can't put words to it. 
And often we can't, but you'll be able to identify why you're feeling it, what brought it up, what it feels like in your body, if it has a sensation, if it has a color, you can give it some kind of identifier, even if it's something that only makes sense to you. And if it feels too overwhelming, imagine if you could just choose to feel 10% of it just for a few minutes. Once you've given yourself a few minutes just to feel part of it, just to say, okay, I don't like the way this feels. It's so uncomfortable. I want to do something to distract myself because I don't like this. Someone's mad at me. I think that's what I'm feeling. I think I'm afraid that someone's mad at me and I don't like that. Or I, I think I made a mistake and I need to apologize to someone and I'm feeling shame. Or I think I hurt someone's feelings and I'm feeling embarrassed. Whatever it is, even if you can't really tell for sure what it is you're feeling, if you could just allow yourself to sit still in it for just a minute and not run from it and not distract yourself from it, and you're going to want to because that's what you're used to doing. And if you just sit with it for a second and just talk to it or listen to it and let it be wherever it is and then say, okay, I did that long enough. I can't do it for anymore. And then you go on about your business. Later on, when the feeling comes back, because it will if you haven't processed it all the way through, still living there, still attached to something, look back over the time that you weren't thinking about it. Did it take you out? Did it consume you? Did it completely overwhelm you? Or were you able to do a few things and be okay? And when you feel safe, you can come back and try feeling another 10% of it. And if you can't bring yourself to do that, that's okay too. You can always use other methods. Creativity is a pathway to our knowing. When we use our hands to create something, there is a neurological response that connects our brains to our emotions, to our feelings, to our intuition. Everyone's creative. Even though you may have a narrative that says you're not, we're all born creative. Go into a room of four-year-olds, give them a box of crayons, have them draw a picture and they will come and show it to you proudly. And they will not tell you, well, you know, I goofed on this one part. I drew the ear wrong or I wanted him to have red hair, but the crayon was orange. They don't do that. They're so proud of what they drew. If you ask a group of four-year-olds, how many of them are artists? They will all raise their hand. You believed you were an artist when you were four, but we forget because we get critiqued. My teacher on, in first grade, on the first day of first grade, told me I colored wrong. Who tells a six-year-old they colored wrong? We get critiqued. And the moment we get critiqued, we start critiquing ourselves. But you are creative. So if you can't touch into what it is you're experiencing, draw it. Write about it. Write anything. You don't have to write about the emotion. Just write. Write whatever comes to mind. Create something. Do something with your hands. Cook. Anything you do with your hands will take your brain into a different place. If you'll notice when your hands are occupied, you can't multitask. I don't like to journal. And if you don't like to write when you're processing something, give yourself permission to let that one go. Because a lot of people think that's the only way to process an emotion. I can type 90 words a minute, but my brain works faster than that. And I don't care if I'm writing or typing. If I'm trying to process something I'm feeling, my writing cannot keep up with my brain. And then I get frustrated. And so I talk to myself. My husband will tell you, he'll hear me whispering around the house. Usually I am having an imaginary conversation with someone that I can't actually have, or I'm, I'm having the conversation with myself in order to process through something that's bothering me. 
I'm a storyteller. So I'll start telling it to myself. We do a process called empty chair work, where you pull up a chair and you put another person in it. Not really, but you imagine that the person that you need to talk to is sitting in that chair. And then you have a conversation with that person. And you can say things to that person when they're not there that you would never be able to say to their face. And sometimes that's all we need to do to process through an emotion, especially an anger emotion or resentment. Or if someone's done something to harm us or lose our trust or make us feel unsafe, it's a great way to process that, especially if they don't believe they've done anything wrong. I can process through things verbally and make so much better progress than any other way. So you find the way you need to get through to the other side of that emotion. Give yourself the opportunity to do it as part of processing As I say that term, I'm realizing that you may not understand what that means. It's just giving it voice. It's all the things that I've mentioned so far, listening to it, waiting for it, sitting uncomfortably in it, wanting to run, but not. But these creative things I'm talking about are actually can become processes for working through the emotion, or they may be the thing that gets you to identifying the emotion. But one of the things that's really important to do as part of processing an emotion is to acknowledge the effort the emotion is putting into trying to protect you or inform you or bring you into awareness. So rather than try to make logical sense of them, because often our emotions aren't logical, just try to get a felt sense of what it is you're experiencing. Your emotions just need to be experienced and validated in order to move through. That's it. Just being able to say, you know what? I'm angry and I have a right to be angry. What that person did to me was not okay. That's processing. That's validating. And that's experiencing. I'm acknowledging what I feel. That's another level of experiencing that feeling. So just keep in mind, this takes practice. You're going to be good at it at times and you're going to suck at it at times and you're just going to want to run away from it at times because sometimes emotions are just really, really hard. But when you can learn to be uncomfortable for an extended period of time, that is usually the thing that's keeping you from feeling your feelings is that you're avoiding the discomfort of them. And the truth is they're not comfortable, but leaving them in our bodies is even more uncomfortable because that's not where they're meant to stay. One last thing, because they're not meant to stay in your body, if you've done all the processing and it still feels like it's just kind of sitting there, you're wearing it as anxiety or a pit in your stomach or something else, keep keep processing it in whatever way works for you. Keep revisiting it as often as you need to. So one of the things that's really important around not allowing emotion to stay in your body is if you've got something really major going on and it's just you're having a hard time shaking it and the emotion is overwhelming you and overcoming you at times, moving your body can be really, really helpful in moving that emotion through. Massage, yoga, Pilates, any body work, any breath work that you do will help you create movement in the body that pushes emotion through. And that's another way of processing. It's a physiological way of processing emotion. And so that's another key element to it as well. So practice it. I really encourage you to just take the opportunity the next time something comes up, especially if it feels uncomfortable, but try, you could even try it on a good emotion. If something, if you're just really happy about something, then process what that feels like, where you feel it in your body. 
you know, we, we navigate the world really outside of ourselves so often, especially if we've had childhood trauma, even if we've done work around it, it's really easy for us to abandon ourselves. And that's when emotions are really hard to identify when we're disconnected from ourselves. So that's what putting the hand on the heart and the belly is about. It's really connecting to our deepest, deepest, highest self. And in that space, we are filled with love and compassion and kindness and goodness and patience for ourselves and for others. And if you can connect to that, then you're going to be a little bit more sensitive to what it is you're actually feeling. You'll begin to notice the sensations in your body that are related to the emotion that you're feeling. And if you can just connect to those sensations, then it will eventually teach you how to connect to the actual emotion. And you'll be able to begin to identify the difference between anxiety and and excitement. For, For instance, sometimes we're excited, but it feels like anxiety. And sometimes it's hard to know the difference. There are a lot of emotions that way. Sometimes we feel angry, but the anger is really masking fear. Often we feel angry and the anger is masking fear. But let me just tell you something too. Anger is not always a secondary emotion. Some people will tell you it is. Sometimes anger is just. Sometimes anger is necessary. Sometimes anger is your primary emotion and needs to be felt in order for you to be okay. And it's all about feeling it and responding to it appropriately. Big feelings sometimes require a big response. And we can have a big response without being inappropriate. I can scream into a pillow. I can get in my car and scream as loud as I wanted anybody and say all kinds of hateful things if I need to just to get past it. I can do that and remain appropriate. Just make sure I don't expose anyone to it that it could harm. But we have to feel it. Hey, thank you for joining us. Continue the self-care conversation with us on Instagram at at Podcast and in the Selfie Podcast community group on Facebook. You can also visit our website to check out the resources we've talked about in each episode at SelfiePodcast.com. Make sure to subscribe to Selfie on iTunes so you can catch up with us next week. Take care. <laughs>